Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. I want to start off this morning by just kind of polling in here, getting an idea. How many of you are movie fans? You like movies. You like a good movie, okay? All right, just about everybody likes movies, but people usually differ on what, what they would consider to be a good movie, okay? Uh, because you like usually certain genres of movies. So, for instance, are there any sci-fi Sci-fi movies, you're like, hey, when I watch a movie, I want it to be a sci-fi. Okay, how about action and adventure? You want to watch stuff just blow up. That's all. It doesn't matter if the story has a plot line. You just want to see explosions and car chases, all right? How about uh, suspense and thrillers? You want to kind of have to think about how it's going. What about horror movies? Something wrong with you people? That's all right. There's counseling for that. Um, Let's see, have I gotten all of them? Oh, how about period pieces, like set back in history? That's my favorite. My absolute favorite is that. Um, let's see, I'm leaving out one important genre, the chick flick, baby. How many chick flick fans you got in here? I'll be honest, I don't mind a, bat, I don't mind a good chick flick every once in a while. Now, when it, not all chick flicks, though, are created equal. We know that, right? And uh, usually there's two different types of chick flick. One that you would find on the Hallmark Channel, and then the other one that you're going to find on the Lifetime Network, right? Holmes Manor is like a, uh, it's a, um, it's a house divided, okay, at Holmes Manor. Uh, Natalie, Natalie and Stacy are team Lifetime, while me and Noel are team Hallmark. And seriously, I don't know what that says for mine and Stacy's view of our marriage and our relationship um, and our love uh, there, uh, there. But see, because the main difference between Hallmark chick flicks and Lifetime chick flicks is in Hallmark, everything turns out wonderful. The girl usually always gets the guy. But in Lifetime, the guy usually gets what's coming to him is basically what that boils down to, right? Because <laughs> Hallmark movies, this is why I like them. Hallmark movies, they follow the same pattern. Like, I don't want to sweat through a love, a love story. I want to know that everything's going to turn out good at the end. It's really, Hallmark movies are really just the same plot line, especially the Christmas romance movies. Or we just came through Christmas and, 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 and stuff. So here's the formula. It's always the same formula for a Hallmark movie, but just listen to some of these storylines and see if they sound familiar to you. In a Hallmark movie, there's usually maybe a deceased parent, which leads another parent to need help from their child, which then leads to a love connection. How did it happen? We don't know. Um, Overworked child plans to skip Christmas, but gets fired and must return to his or her parents, which then leads to a love connection. Big city man travels to a small town Christmas place to destroy it in the name of big business but falls in love instead because there's a love connection. A cold-hearted man hates children or animals, but is forced to care for said children or animals at Christmas and needs help from a neighbor or coworker, which then leads to a love guard. Y'all are catching on. That's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, um, a uh, cold, uh, okay, we got the cold-hearted man. Uh, one person that's down on their luck receives a house or land from a distant relative, but uh, so does a real estate developer or lawyer, and though they don't seem to see eye to eye, they're going to learn to love each other through remodeling this free house because of a love connection. Bad attitude, non-Christmas person reunites with an old flame through a very unlikely circumstance, falls in love because, well, it's Christmas after all, right? A person going through a bad breakup must also keep the breakup from their parents, which leads to hiring someone to play their former flame and... Love connection, right? All right, there's always something going on with a love connection. No matter what the details, you got the same ingredients to this recipe that is the Hallmark Channel. And it's this, conflicted people are led together by circumstances beyond their control, and they are redeemed by love, which changes everything for the better. Lifetime, on the other hand, the plot is simple. 
Men are bad. Love is pain. That's it. That's lifetime right there for you. All right. Men are bad. Love is pain. So, you know, y'all can figure out which one you are at whatever state of life you're in. The book of Ruth, I'm happy to say, is a wonderful Hallmark story. It's a wonderful, it would probably be better to be played out on the Hallmark channel than rather on Lifetime. Although chapter one, probably you begin reading it feeling like, I don't know, this may be a Lifetime story because chapter one is dark, chapter one is tense, chapter one is sad and it's full of tragedy. But what we do see in chapter one, which every opening act in a Hallmark movie is that they want to show conflicted people that are hurting and broken and missing out on something that will fulfill their life, which, by the way, is, help me out, a love connection, right? Well, Ruth kind of gives us that understanding as well. We're introduced to some characters in the book of Ruth, especially in chapter 1, that kind of show us some very conflicted people. They are hurting, and they are broken, and they don't know where to turn. And this story is so good because it goes a little further than just a love story. It goes into a real-life metaphor, which is the greatest love story of all, that shows us the love that Christ has for us. The book of Ruth is not just this parenthetical little story that took place in the time of the judges. The book of Ruth shows us the gospel and the love of Christ through these players that are playing this out. And the thing is, this isn't a parable. This is a real-life instance that took place. Ruth was such an impactful book and an impactful piece of literature in the ancient Hebrew world that it was decreed that the book of Ruth was to be read every year at some of the Jewish feasts that were kept before God to remind the people that there is a redeemer, that there is, a, like we just sang about this morning, that there is a way maker, that there is a miracle worker, that there is a promise keeper, and that is our God and that's who he is. That no matter how bad things may seem, God is always working behind the scenes and he is working to redeem us through his love for us. See, sometimes there are some love stories that just have the power to change the world. And that's what we see in the story of Ruth. I hope you're excited and I hope you'll commit now to be uh, involved in every single meeting that we have through the, through the month of, of February. We're going to go through one chapter every week and it's an amazing story. Today, you may leave thinking, oh man, this is not sounding good, but I want to just whet your appetite. It gets way better. It gets way better, so stick with it today. So let's get an introduction to the characters. Every good story has amazing characters that we can grab onto and we can personally connect to, and we're introduced to some as well. So we're going to begin reading in, book number, uh, in, in chapter number one of the book of Ruth. This is act number one, if you, could, if you want to think about it that way. And it says this, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So we're going to stop there. Where, what time period are we looking at? It's the day when the judges ruled over Israel. If you go back just to your left, you'll see that the book of Judges sits right before the book of Ruth. Ruth, you could actually take it, pick it up, and sit it down in the book of Judges somewhere because it's actually happening during that time in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is chaotic. It's war-prone. It's bloody. It began with Joshua's death at the end of the book of Joshua, and it ended with the coronation of Saul as the first king of Israel. The period of Judges was marked by a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. The end of the book of Judges tells us that God had sent so many people to try to set them back on, on the path to righteousness, but in the end result, they all ended up just doing what was right in their, in their own eyes, which is always a phrase that tells us that people were in rebellion to God. Even though they knew what was right, they didn't do it. So here was an effect. 
Right after we see that, as we pick up in the, in the other part of verse number one, it says, there was a famine in the land. In the time of the judges, there came a famine in the land. Now, famine is always a metaphor for human conflict and human desperation. Famine oftentimes happened as a way of God's judging people and God's punishing people for their unrighteousness and for turning their back on God. And so it says this, because of the famine, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, who went to sojourn or went to stay for a little while in the country of Moab, which was just a little bit, uh, which was close to them, kind of an adjoining land there in Canaan. And it says, he and his wife and his two sons. Now this shows, verse number one, shows us how far God's people had fallen. God's people who God had chosen, who had chosen to bless, who sent them to the land that God had prepared for them, to bless them and then to bless the world through them, are now leaving that land because it is no longer prosperous for them. And it's not because God sent them to a place where it just dried up. It's because when they were there, they turned their back on God. And God did not cause the famine to come. He removed his hand of blessing, which is what then led to the famine. What's interesting to me is this land, Canaan, in the Old Testament was called a land that is supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. Yet now all the milk and honey is dried up and there's nothing there. There's just fear. So much so that God's man, Elimelech, would leave God's land, Bethlehem, which, by the way, means house of bread. Isn't that interesting? He leaves a place called house of bread because there's no more bread, because they turned their back on God. How far they had fallen at this time. Now we pick up in verse number two. And the name of the man was Elimelech, which literally means, his name means, my God is king. He says, and the name of his wife is Naomi, which literally means pleasant sweetness. And the name of his two sons are Malon and Chilion. Now, they don't get his cool names. Malon means sickly and Chilion means spent. All right, these guys are just, I don't know what happened, but that's what their names meant. They must have, I mean, Naomi must have just had a hard time in childbirth. I'm not sure. They're all Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab, and now they continued there. In verse number one, they went to sojourn, just stay for a little while, and now they're continuing in verse number two. Now they're going to stay there. And it says, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And she was left and her two sons, and so their sons took them wives of the women of Moab. And the name, was, the name of one was Orpah. She was kind of like a mouthy talk show host or something, I guess. And the name of the other one is Ruth. Now, don't miss the fact that these sons married Moabite women from a land that was pagan, that worshipped other gods. So they had gone into this land that knew not God. They had stayed there longer than they should have. And now they think that their, their prosperity is going to come from hooking their wagons to people who don't know God, which was completely, completely condemned by God in the Old Testament. It was completely against the law. And it says, and they dwelled there about 10 years after their sons got married. What's interesting to me is that in 10 years, Orpah and Ruth, neither one of them have children with their husbands. Could be because they're both barren, or it could be because Malon and Chilion, sickly and spent, just couldn't father children. We don't know which one it is. But then something else happens in verse number five. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So here we have the great conflict in the story. Here we have the great sadness, the, the tragedy and the turmoil that something's going to have to give if things are going to get better. We have three women widowed in Moab. There are no children. There's no prospects for any help. They're destitute. They are in some serious trouble. And for all intents and purposes, they're hopeless. So we're left thinking, what are they going to do? Three women alone and dying in Moab. 
And in verse number six, it says, And then she arose, speaking of Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, because she had heard from Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So now we see that God had come back and began to bless the children of Israel again. Wherefore, in verse number seven, she sent forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, being a Hebrew widow in a nation of Moab left Naomi no prospects for prosperity, no prospects for the future. They weren't going to marry, no, no uh, Moab, Moabite man was going to marry a Hebrew uh, widow. Because Naomi at this point is too old to bear children. And in those days in the ancient world, having a, pros- having a progenity, having children was one of the most important reasons that you got married. Having children and letting their family line go on. And so she's like, there is no hope for me in Moab. I cannot as a woman get by as a single widow in this world. I must go back home where God is providing and where I do have a little bit of family. So in verse number eight, we see something else take place. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, I'm going back to, I'm going back, but you need to go to each one of you, return to your mother's house. This is hard because in a patriarchal society, everything would have been attributed to the father's house. But here what's interesting is she says, I want you to go back to your mother's house. What Naomi is saying here is she loves these two girls so much. They had become so close and hardship will bring you together, right? But she knows that she can't endure as a foreigner in Moab. But she also knows that Orpah and Ruth cannot endure as a foreigner in Israel, back in Judah. So, con- so, so circumstances beyond their control, they know that they have to part ways. And she says, go back to your mother's house, not her father's house, but go back to your mother's house because she is saying, I am no longer your mother. I'm giving up my rights to you. Go back to your mother because that's the only place that you have hope. And then it says, and may the Lord deal kindly with you in, in verse number eight. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord may grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and they wept. And they said unto her, surely we will return with you unto your people. You see, they love her and they want to stay with her. And they realize that this blessing and this kiss is her saying goodbye for the final time. Trying to give them their best hope for survival. And Naomi says again, turn again, my daughters, in verse number 11. Why will you go with me? Are there any more sons in my womb that you may be able to be, that may be able to be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, and go your own way, for I am too old to have a husband. And should, if, if for some reason I, I have one, if I should have a husband also tonight and should bear sons from that, would you tarry for them until they were grown? And would you stay for them from having husbands? What she's saying here is, I'm too old to have children, so therefore, I'm not going to get a husband. And even if I did, and even if I did were to get pregnant now, are you going to wait for my sons to grow up so that you could marry them? See, this is talking about the law of leveret marriage in the Hebrew society. That if you were in a big family, most of the families at that time were big, so if you had a guy that died and widowed his wife without a child, then the brother of that guy would marry his sister-in-law to provide for her and to continue the family line. And so what she's looking at, and she's saying there is no prospect whatsoever. She's like, I'm too old to have kids. Even if I did have kids, are you going to wait until they're old enough to marry? Now, now I've heard of age differences, but that's going to be severe, right? And here's the other thing. By the time those guys are old enough to marry, Orpah and Ruth, they're going to be too old to have kids too. So they're not going to want to marry them for the, creating the family line. So there is nothing 
but hopelessness for all three of these women at this point. And then he says, no, and then she says, no, my daughters, in the latter part of verse number 13. It grieves me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Here we see that Naomi is hopeless and she thinks that God has completely turned her, his back on her and in punishment and she wants to minimize the punishment that falls on Orpah and, and Ruth. And they lifted up their voice and they wept again in verse 14 and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her, she grabbed on. And she, Naomi, said, behold, your sister-in-law is gonna go back to her people and into her gods, but you need to go after your sister-in-law. You need to do the same thing. So Orpah says goodbye, but Naomi says, I ain't leaving. I'm sticking with you. And in verse number 16, we see this incredible passage. And Ruth said to her, entreat me or do not force me to leave you or to return from following after you because where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if aught but death depart me in you. And when she saw that, she was steadfastly minded to go with her. Naomi then left speaking unto her. Basically, that word steadfastly, you can translate that to stubbornly. Ruth was stubborn. She's like, I'm not leaving you. I'm not giving up on you. The passage that we read here is sometimes used in the marriage commitment. But it's probably a more vivid picture for us of what conversion really looks like. When we come to know Jesus Christ, what we're saying is, I'm no longer who I was. I'm coming out of Moab, and I'm coming home to Jerusalem. I'm coming home to you. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. We trade in this world of sin for righteousness through Jesus Christ, and we are now identified with him in Jesus Christ. So here's a scene, and and basically what Ruth is saying to Naomi, my only hope, my best hope is with you. There's nothing for me back here anymore. I've done that. I don't want that anymore. There's nothing for me. I'm staying with you. I'm committed to you. I'm loyal to you. And she's like, I'm going to ride or die with you, Naomi. And so now we have a scene shift from Moab, and now the scene picks up in Bethlehem in verse number 19. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were coming to Bethlehem that all the city was moved or was stirred up or they were excited about that they had come home. And they said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi wanted her name to be legally changed because in her eyes, there is nothing left. There is no hope. There's nothing pleasant or sweet. There's nothing Naomi about her life anymore. She is only left with bitterness and desolation. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which, by the way, is what sin will do to us, will leave us from the pleasant sweetness that God intends for us into bitterness. And so we see that anger in her statement and that pain in her statement. She felt that the Lord was bitter against her, and more than likely she felt just as bitter towards God. She said in verse number 21, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. You can sense this regret, this pain, this grief, and this anger. And she says, why then do you call me Naomi, seeing that the Lord has testified, or he has judged over me and judged against me? And the Almighty hath afflicted me. He said, the Lord has judged against me. And then she says, the Almighty. And that's interesting. The one who had the power to redeem, the one who had the power to save, the one who had the power to rescue from all of this hardship chose not to do it. So she feels abandoned by God. And here's the summary statement in verse number 22 as we close out the chapter. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, 
And that looks tough, doesn't it? That's a tough chapter right there, isn't it? But here's the piercing light in the beginning of the barley harvest. Father, I pray that you would speak through these words this morning as we are looking mostly and, and deriving mostly from this passage of Scripture. Will you show us your truth? Will you speak to us and show you and show us that you are always there, even in the midst of darkness, in the midst of despair, in the midst of our Mara moments? You are there shining the light that there is hope on the way. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. This chapter is a pretty rough start to a beautiful love story. By the way, I'm telling you, it gets better. It's a beautiful love story, so hang with it. But this first chapter is rough. It almost starts out like a, like a Lifetime movie, not like a Hallmark movie. Like, where, how, is the, how are things going to get better from here? But for the next few minutes, I want to look at what this story teaches us on a spiritual level. While this is a fantastic story in and of, its, of, of itself, it teaches us something on a very spiritual level because I believe this, that you can find the gospel and you can find God working for the redemption of all humanity in every page of Scripture. That the moment that we broke things through sin, God got to work, and I believe he was working even before that to redeem us. God is always doing a work of redemption in mankind. He always is. Even though it may seem hard, even though it may seem tough, God is always working to bring redemption to mankind. And that's the overall theme of this book, that no matter what goes on through this, God is working. God's never mentioned, really. It doesn't ever mention in the narrative that God did this. But what we see is the things that took place could only be God, could only be God working. But what we have to understand are two things this morning. I want to look at this morning. I believe chapter 1 shows us two things. It shows us the devastating power of sin. I believe that is well spelled out through this passage. And I believe the second thing that it shows us is the redeeming power of God's grace. The devastating power of sin and the redeeming power of God's grace. So let's look first of all at the devastating power of sin. The first thing that we have to understand about that devastating power of sin is it will, it will break and destroy our relationship with God. It will break our relationship with God because we see in the very beginning of this passage the effects of a broken relationship with God, right? Right there in verse number one, the effects of Israel's broken relationship with God affected not just their spirits, it affected their land as well. Canaan was designed to be a land that would always be a physical uh, explanation or manifestation of how God is dealing with his people at that moment. When they were faithful, it prospered. When they were unfaithful, it began to be destroyed and it began to dry up because it was a physical manifestation of Israel's relationship with their God. And through that, they would bless the world. This time in Israel's history was marked by disobedience. The time of the judges was rough, it was bloody, it was chaotic, and it wasn't pretty. Famine struck the land, and they were supposed to be a land of flowing with milk and honey, but here they are all dried up. And again, I want to repeat like I did earlier, God didn't cause the famine. All God has to do to bring punishment in our lives. He doesn't have to dole out this nasty stuff on us. All he has to do is, re is release his protective and blessing hand. This is why it's so important to stay close and clean with God because when you're close to God, there's this umbrella of blessing and protection. And you may say, I'm trying to be close to God right now, but all I see is negative things. But what you do have at your disposal is joy and peace that he is there. Israel didn't always have everything wonderfully. I'm not saying that. But what they did have was in spite of all the siege that they had coming in on every side when people were attacking them, they had God's presence. But you see, God had just, because sin creates distance from God, sin has the effect of 
breaking our relationship and driving a wedge between us and God. If you haven't lived long enough with the Lord and in your relationship with the Lord to see that, trust me, it will come because none of us are perfect. We all sin. We all wonder. But the wonderful thing is, if we will open our hearts, we can hear that voice of the Lord saying, come home. Come home, my child. Elimelech, which is interesting. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king leaves the land that God gave him, the land of God, and goes to live in a godless land, a pagan land. So he goes completely against his given identity. He goes against that identity that God had given him. He said, you have been created. Your name means my God is king. I will worship you. I will serve you. I am a child of the king. And he leaves and he goes to a land called Moab, which doesn't love God, doesn't worship God, and hates everything about what God has done there in Canaan. That's what sin does for us. Sin has broken God's original intent for us. When God created us in the garden of Adam and, uh, in the garden of Adam and even in the garden of Eden, God had created man for relationship and fellowship and service to God. But sin broke it and destroyed it and created that wedge of separation and that wedge of brokenness in the relationship. So anytime we sin, we have to understand this. Anytime we sin, we're setting ourselves at odds with a holy and righteous God. And let me say this too. Any sin has that effect. There are not some sins that God just says, you know what, that's okay. I understand. No, because God is holy, and he is all the way holy, and he is righteous, and he is all the way righteous, which means no sin can approach him. He cannot accept any sin. But I'm so thankful that while he won't accept any sin, he will fully accept the sinner but the sin must be dealt with. You see, any sin that we sin, we're setting ourselves at odd with the holy and righteous God. Scripture, if you notice, never makes light of sin. Anytime sin is mentioned in Scripture, there is always painstaking effort to make sure that you understand that there is a consequence for that sin. There's an outcome for that sin. We will always come to a place of payday. But the beauty of grace is that in Jesus Christ, sins can be forgiven and sins can be covered but we must deal with that sin. We won't let it just go. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights. There are a lot of people who think that if God has all the power, why doesn't he just say, yeah, you know what, that's okay. We'll just kind of wipe that off your record because sin must be paid for. There must be redemption in the face of sin. See, does God love us in spite of our sin? Yes, but we must never let that lead us to a light treatment or a lighthearted view of sin. Yes, God's grace is extreme, but the punishment and the consequences of sin is extreme too. God's grace must be applied. Sin separates us from God and it stifles his hand of blessing. So it breaks our relationship with God and it also then takes hold of us and it never intends to let go. This is, some of the, this is the devastating power of sin as well, is that, it, is that it grabs hold of us and it never intends to let go. Sin doesn't just grab hold of us and toy with us for a little while and just let it go, right? I'm, an old, I'm the oldest child. Any oldest children in the room? All right. Did you ever taunt your younger siblings? Right, because at that period of time when you were stronger than them, you'd hold on to something and you just taunt them with it. And what I used to love to do with my brother is when I noticed that he would always have his full weight behind pulling on something, what do you do? You just let it go. Because that's even funnier, man. Not watch them struggle, but watching them fall flat on the ground. That's hilarious. Sin never intends to let go. Sin always intends to entrap forever. This is the devastating power of sin. 
This is what happens, and this is what had happened with Elimelech and Ruth and Naomi and Chilion and Melion. See, in verse number one, it says that Elimelech eventually or originally only went to Moab to what? To sojourn. That word means to stay for a little while. And this is a lot of times what we do. Just until things get a little easier, I'm going to step away from God. And then in verse number two, by the time verse number two comes around, what does it say? It says they came to Moab and they continued, meaning they set up residence. They set up residence there. They decided to make it their home. The sons married Moabite wives. They assimilated into the culture, and they're there for 10 years, and that's when everything falls apart. Everything falls apart, and they're left broken and hopeless. And this is the nature of sin. We oftentimes wander into sin because we think it's just easier over here for a little while. I can walk away from God just for a little while. He'll understand, and I can always come back. Because what God is asking me to do is just too hard. So I'm going to wander over here in disobedience for a little while. And I'll just be there for a little while. I can always come back. But what happens? Sin grabs us and always keeps us longer than we intend to stay. And then we find ourselves at the full, at the full mercy, at the full, under the full weight of that sin. And we're like, how did I get here? How did I get here? And how did I stay here this long? Sin always destroys the relationship with God, and sin will always hold on to us longer than we want because the ultimate effect of sin is never intended to be temporary. Understand this. The ultimate effect of sin is never to, intended to be temporary in our lives. The pleasure will always be temporary, but the effect, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. The effect of sin is always intended to be permanent. And I also find it really interesting at the names of the two boys, Malon and Chilion, right? You got sickly and spent trying to make it in the land of Moab. This teaches us that we're Malon and Chilion. If we try to go things, if we try to go this life on our own, we're too sickly and we're too spent to be able to handle the temptation, to be able to handle the rough road in, in sin because we need redemption and we need the power of God to bring us up out of that. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, and it's beautiful of what God is telling us in this passage. The last thing that sin will do is it'll take everything from you. It'll strip you bare, and it'll leave you with nothing at all. While they're in Moab, there's three deaths. Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Chilion dies. Now, in the ancient culture, where it was very patriarchal, for the only three men in the family to die meant for the women, it's not long until they die because there's no prospects for their future. What God was showing them is, if you're trying to hope against hope that you can just make it out here outside of my will, I'm showing you that you can't. Because sin will take everything from you. When Naomi arrived back in Judah, here's what she said. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant and sweet because my life is anything but. The effects of the time in Moab had driven her down so far to find out. I tried to go out there and find some sort of satisfaction, but I have found nothing but hurt and pain and desolation. And so she says, call me Mara, because that's more reflective of my life right now. I'm bitter. I'm hopeless. And she's probably angry at God at this point, too, not understanding what he's done. See, God's intent for our life is a Naomi kind of life. God's intent for our life is to have a life of pleasant sweetness in relationship and fellowship with God. But what sin will do is take us to a place where we are more identified with Mara, with being bitter, with being desolate, and with being without hope. Sin will take every joy from your life. It will dry your bones and it will rob you of the identity that you should have in Christ. 
It'll take it all. See, the events in the storyline of chapter 1 kind of leaves us hanging there in this desolate place, right? You got death. You got hopelessness. You got widows who can't bear children anymore. You've got pagans who can't survive in God's land. You've got God's woman who can't survive in the, survive in the pagan land. There's just nothing good happening here, right? It's not a real heartwarming story. But even in the midst of this tragic, dark chapter, we see light piercing through. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of the time this morning talking about. Is that no matter how devastating the power of sin may be, the power of God's grace is always always able to redeem. His redeeming love always pulls us through. See, the first thing is, is that when God's redeeming power restores the broken relationship by calling us back to him through grace. God's power calls us back to him through grace. In the text, we see that while she's in Moab, Naomi hears that the famine in God's land had ended. She said this, it says, from the fields of Moab, she had heard that God had visited her old land with bread. So the reason they left was because there was no bread. And now it says they visited them with bread. So now they can go back to Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. God's people finally got right with God and God began blessing them again. But Naomi is sitting over here. And here's the thing that's beautiful is God made sure that even in Moab, even in Moab, even while she's away from God, God made sure that she heard through the grapevine that God was blessing again, that there was hope for her to live back home, that she could find food. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that meant a little bit more next week. Because knowing that there was food and knowing that there was grain meant she could possibly survive going there. Even from the fields of Moab, she heard of the grace of God. In the midst of despair, a ray of light reaches her that there's bread in her homeland. God allowed and made sure that she heard that. Now for us, we have to understand that ever since the fall of man, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, God's been working to call us to him. God's been working to redeem us and restore that broken relationship through his grace. The minute that Adam and Eve sinned, the relationship, the walking daily with God in the garden and the fellowship that they had with God and this easy life that they had of pleasant sweetness turned immediately into separation from God and Mara and bitterness. But God got to work. He sewed up the, he sewed up the, the skins and he covered them in their sin and he did all these things and he said that, and then he began to make that prophetic announcement that one day there will come someone that will destroy the serpent and will destroy sin and will destroy all those things that separate us from God. Even in the midst of Moab, God called out to Naomi. God called out to Mara and said, there's pleasant sweetness back home. For some of you here this morning, you're sitting here and you're saying, my life has been marked by nothing but running from God, saying no to him. I encourage you to go back and look at the events of your life and see where was God calling out to me saying there's bread at home? Where's God been calling out to me saying there is bread if you will just return to the land of bread? And then we see something else. This is cool. God's redeeming love through his redeeming love, he proves his loyalty to us and tells us that we are never alone. He proves his loyalty to us that we are never alone. Though we may wander and though we may be disloyal to God, God never wanders from us and he is never disloyal to us, ever. And you might be sitting here this morning thinking, you have no idea what's going on in my life right now because I feel completely and totally alone. I feel completely and totally abandoned from God. 
Understand that God never leaves. He never forsakes. He proves his loyalty. See, what Ruth, when she said, I'm going to stay with you, Naomi, it's a beautiful picture of what happens when we come to conversion in Christ, but it's also a wonderful picture and a refusal of abandon for Naomi to go back to her family. It's a picture of us in the relentless presence of God. Ruth is basically saying to Naomi, I'm not giving up on you. She said, go back to your parents because God has given up on me. And she said, you may think that, but I'm going to show you. I'm not going to give up on you. I will be with you. Your people will be my people. I will go with you. Come what may, I'm not leaving you. And that was God just dropping that real life reminder. You're not alone, Naomi. You're not alone. God will never give up on you. No matter where you've been, and you may be thinking that you've burned way too many bridges. You may be thinking that you've spent way too much time in your own personal Moab. But I'm here to declare to you this morning through the authority of God's word, even in the midst of Moab, God is there and he is with you and he is calling you back through his redemptive grace and his merciful love for you. Not one moment will you ever be alone. Not one second will God take his eye off on you, of you. Not one moment will God ever look at you and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have sent my son. He's never regretted it for one moment and he never will. And Jesus has never regretted going to the cross for one moment, and he never will. Because he loves us. Because that's his redeeming power. That's his redeeming grace to us. And then the last thing we close out is that he shows us that he will always welcome us home. His redemptive power means that he is always willing to welcome us home. It means there's nothing that we can do to ever turn God's mind or heart against us where he says, you're not allowed back. The moment that we were kicked out of the garden, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God began calling back home. We had to come home a different way, through grace, through repentance, but he has left the path and he has left the door wide open for all of us. When Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Bethlehem, there in the latter part of the chapter, what happens? There's a couple of things that take place, right? What happens? The Bible says that the entire city of Bethlehem was excited. Here they come. Here, here, here Naomi comes. She's come back, and they're like, is this Naomi? After 10 years of being gone, 10 years or more after being gone, they're like, it's Naomi. How much love was shown to her and show that you are not alone and that you have made the right decision by coming home. But she still puts her hand out, doesn't she? She's like, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. She's still left kind of like on edge, right? She's like, I'm only here because this is the only place that I think I can survive. You know what? That may be your attitude this morning with God. I'm only coming back to you because I've just tried everything else. And I'm just giving up. There have been times in my life, there are some seasons in my life, when I went through some things and I walked through some Moab moments, and I didn't necessarily come because I was so broken hearted. I came because I was just so sick and tired of the pain and the fight. And I didn't necessarily lay it down at the foot of the cross. I threw it at the cross. I'm like, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this burden anymore. And it was that moment of I'm coming back. You may have that wrestling moment with God, but understand that his redemptive power is great and it will never leave him unwilling to, to have you return home. He's always calling you back. And if some of you are beginning to think about the prodigal son, it's kind of a real good story here. Naomi is like the prodigal son returning home, and they were excited to have her, and they took her in. We're going to see just how much next week. But the town was moved about them, 
And here's what Scripture tells us, that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. And as we get ready and as we close out this morning, are you that one sinner? I want to ask you that question. When one sinner comes to repentance, this is a beautiful picture. One woman comes home. A whole family left, but there was only one woman left to come back. Elimelech isn't coming back. Malon, Chilion, they're not coming back. But Naomi came back, and they're happy about it, and they welcome her back. There may be a lot of losses along the way, along your time out in Moab, but realize that as long as there's breath in your body, there is hope for your soul. You can always return. And for some of you, it may be the first time you need to come from Moab back to, back to God. He's calling you through salvation and through his grace. He says, come home to me. Why? Because in the book of Luke, the Bible tells us there is rejoicing in heaven when just one sinner comes to repentance. This is how much God loves us. This is his redeeming power. They celebrate because that's the goal of grace, to see sinners come to repentance. This chapter is not really the prettiest chapter in the world, but there's beauty when you lift the hood and begin to peek under it and see what God is doing behind the scenes, right? He's peeking, you peek under the hood and you begin to see that even through all of this, God is working through Moab and through all of that, he's working to bring them back. How has God been working to bring you back in your life? Where are the times and the seasons in your life where God has worked to bring you back? And if he hasn't, I can assure, or if you haven't noticed it yet, I can assure you, it's not because he hasn't been, it's because you haven't noticed it yet because he is always working to bring you back because there's that ray of light at the very end of our text. And they all returned to Bethlehem, the land of bread, and it was just at the beginning of the barley harvest. It was just the perfect time. Understand that whenever you return back to God, it's always the perfect time. It's always the right time to return to him, to receive that redemptive power of grace.